Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Economics. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks, your host. Today I am with Professor Christopher Marquis. Uh, we will speak about his latest book. This was published by Yale University Press. The title is Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. Um, Christopher, welcome. Thanks for your time. Uh, can I ask you to tell us something about your current and past affiliations and the origin of this book? Yeah, sure thing. Great. And thanks for having me, Andrew. Really, really looking forward to talking about the book uh, with you today. Uh, so, so how the book came about actually, yeah, is very intimately tied with my different affiliations. So uh, I'm currently at Cornell. I've been at Cornell for about four to five years now. Uh, I work on issues of sustainable development and also do some work on, on sustainability in China. Uh, before that, I spent 10 years uh, and then also about two years at Harvard Kennedy at Harvard Business School and then Harvard Kennedy School. And the idea for the book came about uh, from during my time at Harvard Business School and particularly uh, the enthusiasm that my students were having for for-profit social uh, businesses, sort of social enterprises that have a mix of, you know, sort of for-profit uh, and not-for-profit uh, agendas uh, within them. And, you know, I started off when I was at HBS and I was teaching a class on corporate social responsibility, which is, you know, in the past has been a research focus of mine. And one day in class, a student, sort of very smart uh, student said, you know, to study businesses' effects on societies, we should not be studying sort of large companies in their CSR programs. We, we should be studying companies that have a social mission at their core, like B corporations. And this, you know, I had never heard of B corporations then. This was in 2009. Uh, but I learned very quickly. I got in touch with the founders of B Lab, uh, which is a nonprofit uh, organization that certifies B corporations. So B corporations are businesses that are certified for their social and environmental performance. And I wrote an HBS case study on B-Lab and their work in 2010. Uh, and over the past decade, have been sort of observing and studying this movement, done a number of published case studies, you know, everything from, you know, the first B Corp in China uh, to largest uh, B Corp in the world, which is Danone's North America operation. Uh, and yeah, so it's been a, a great journey. This is very nice, interesting, and also humble of you to um, say that uh, it was, in fact, a student that <laughs> gave you the idea to dig into this uh, topic. Very interesting. So, by the way, the book is divided into 11 chapters. Um, I would start, uh, yes, you already said, uh, so we are talking about for-profit corporations, um, but uh, can you tell us about the notion of a benefit corporation in the United States? Yeah, sure. Uh, that, sure, happy to. Uh, so the benefit corporation, so this is actually a different phenomenon, though connected to the B corporation. So, you know, as I mentioned, 
you know, the B Corporation is a certified, the company certified for their social and environmental uh, benefits by this organization, B Lab. Uh, and the founders of B Lab, when they first started uh, working on this phenomena of trying to sort of really hold businesses accountable, you know, they ran into for their social and environmental impact. They ran into the issue that actually in the United States, the way the corporate governance law is uh, puts shareholders first, called shareholder pr primacy. And they realized that, you know, if that were not changed, it would be hard to really hold companies accountable uh, for their uh, social impact. Because, you know, at some point, if they were up for sale uh, or conflict between investors or investors and, and the leaders of the firm, you know, this principle of shareholder primacy would get in the way of that. So they went about changing uh, corporate law in, in the United States. Uh, and this took a number of years. Uh, so corporate law in the United States is based on a state by state basis. Uh, and, you know, the big kahuna in, in some respects is Delaware, which is where a lot of the large corporations are headquartered because, it, you know, they have very, um, they have specially tailored uh, cor corporate law in Delaware. So they finally got Delaware passed uh, a number of years ago. And so what the benefit corporation then does is it puts other stakeholders like employees, community, even customers, suppliers, sort of on the same legal playing field as shareholders. Uh, and so, you know, I see the two combination of these two elements, the, you know, the benefit corporation, uh, which is sort of the governance, the legal DNA, so to speak, of the company, and then uh, this accountability framework as working together, you know, to really hold companies, uh, hold companies accountable. I want to mention, however, as well, that, you know, this is not just an American phenomena. So, you know, started in America uh, and B Corp wise, actually more than half of the B Corps are outside the U.S. Uh, benefit corporation law. So, again, sort of started, you know, trying to address this issue in, in U.S. corporate law. But many countries, because they actually looked to the U.S. and Delaware for their corporate laws, had the same problems. And so, for instance, Italy has passed a benefit corporation law. It was the first non-U.S. Uh, region to, to do so. Also, Colombia uh, in South America, Ecuador in South America, Canadian province of British Columbia, and is actually under discussion in a number of sort of legislatures around the world. So this is something that, you know, has really spread uh, quite a bit beyond just its American roots. Thank you. Going back to the accreditation movement, so who are the founders and why should we trust uh, the certifying uh, uh, organization? Yeah, good, good, good question. I think that, you know, people should bear anything that where companies say they're doing good in the world, that you, people should be skeptical um, of this uh, uh, first off the bat. Uh, so the founders are, there's three founders. They actually were college friends. They went to Stanford uh, together. Uh, two of them went on to found a, uh, or one of them went on to found, and then another one joined a, a basketball athletic wear brand. Uh, it actually, you know, was a top brand called And One in probably the 1990s, uh, you know, battling Nike and Adidas. You know, there was a cover of Sports Illustrated, the sort of the leading sports magazine in the U.S. Uh, that featured this company. So really... So they found this this uh, this well-known sports brand, uh, and additionally, the third founder 
worked as an investor. And, you know, I think his last position, he was, I think, the head of Michael Dell's family office or family management um, company. And so, you know, sort of the two folks that worked as entrepreneurs and had a very socially uh, conscious and driven business. Uh, and then one investor, you know, sort of is a good set, I think, of people to found this because you need to understand how the companies work, social businesses work from the inside. You need to be able to, you know, sort of convince investors and get investors on board. Uh, so that's sort of the portfolio of the founders. So I think, you know, it's, uh, again, sort of the, the question of, authentic, in some ways, authenticity, is this just greenwashing, I think is a very important one. Uh, I think that there's a couple reasons why consumers can be a little bit more confident in this certification than many other, than sort of just companies saying it. So one is if you actually dig into it, it is quite rigorous uh, as far as what it demands of the company. And, and it's a company level certification. So, you know, companies, you know, it has to look at diverse things from, you know, worker treatment to um, uh, environmental standards to work in communities. Uh, and, you know, many companies that are sort of really well known for their, you know, their social commitment uh, have signed on, which I think also gives it some sort of face validity in some ways that, you know, the fact that Pat Patagonia, a company that, you know, has been deeply involved in the U.S. environmentalist movement, Ben & Jerry's, a uh, company that has been, you know, active on many social uh, issues, uh, you know, uh, Danone, uh, long time since the 1970s, has had this sort of double mission of sort of social and economic benefit and really sees sort of health and nutrition as a core uh, capability. So I think that it's it's something that is uh, is rigorous. You know, there's not that many B Corps, actually. There's about 3,500, which maybe some people might think that's a lot, but actually, you know, for, for something that's been around 10 years, you know, it's really not that large of a number given there's probably tens of millions of businesses uh, around the world. So, you know, in sort of my, my study of it, I've been well convinced that it's a, a rigorous and useful framework to evaluate business. Thank you. Let's move to chapter one, um, which is focusing on interdependencies, not externalities. And if I quote something from the introduction, you say that economic theory based on shareholder primacy says that corporations should limit the cost of externalities to return more money to the shareholders. But this has led us to the crucial tipping point that we find ourselves at today. So what are the externalities and the interdependencies and why we should focus on the interdependencies? Yeah, good, good, uh, good question. Uh, so, you know, this idea of externalities is somewhat unpriced uh, resources that companies draw on for their products, for their processes, for, um, you know, services. You know, so, so the most sort of easiest one to talk about and most obvious one is is carbon. So pollution, you know, companies typically don't have to pay for the pollution that they put into the atmosphere. Uh, and so, you know, when you have, you know, particularly in the United States, the sort of very aggressive sort of Wall Street driven sh focus on shareholders, uh, sort of culture and economic system, 
you know, it's real easy for CEOs and leaders to say, well, you know, let's save a little money and not actually install that, you know, um, that uh, that equipment to to lower the emissions of our factory. Uh, let's let's you know sort of return that to the shareholders and actually you know over the past fifty years as this system of shareholder primacy has evolved, you know there's been all kinds of things like you know stock options, use of stock buybacks, uh, and other ways that you know the the investors have really you know had the upper hand over the other stakeholders. And so the idea of inter- interdependencies is you know that you know companies can and should see their relationship with stakeholders in a much more sort of long-term uh, fashion. So, you know, instead of, you know, trying to save money on pollution equipment, think about, okay, you know, we live in this community. We are a long-term resident of this community. Our workers live in this community. That, so let's actually, you know, pay attention to that and not actually put, put the cost of, of the envir- future, you know, health and other damage that comes about from 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 large environmental impacts, and so uh, this is something that is not, I don't know, sort of revolu- revolutionary. Even some of the biggest traditional investors in the world, there's this guy Larry Fink who runs sort of global largest, I think the largest global investment management uh, company, uh, BlackRock, uh, largest pri- private one. I think that maybe the Japan pension fund is is larger, but uh, so th- so Larry Fink. Has written these very impassioned letters to CEOs over the past number of years, advocating focus more on purpose, focus more on sustainability. And what he says is, you know, what I just said, sort of put another way, is that, you know, if you think about sustainability of the company from an environmental standpoint, you know, that shows that the company is, you know, mitigating long term risks likely indicating better management quality. Uh, and furthermore, uh, it's just sort of more sustainable over the long run. So it's sort of this much more long-term uh, perspective on delivering value to all stakeholders as opposed to just short-term value to uh, shareholders by exploiting these externalities that don't actually have a price on them. Thank you. If we can move to chapter six, which is employees at the heart of the company, uh, how do they measure that the employees are truly at the heart of the company and what do they check? For example, uh, union uh, rights, uh, participation of workers, well-being. Exactly. So, I mean, it's sort of that's the sort of organized labor is something that you get points for in the assessment, whether the company is employee owned or has employee um, profit sharing different benefits, you know, relating to, you know, sort of everything from health and education, uh, you know, sort of maternity, paternity benefits, uh, sort of, you know, a lot of, a lot of things, you know, this is something where, you know, it's, it's an overall assessment of the company. So every company has, you know, it's different sort of flavor uh, uh, in how they actually meet the, meet the standard. The standard is 80 out of, out of 200. Which sort of sounds low, but it, you know, from the people that have gone through it, uh, tell me that it's actually very hard to get and very, very rigorous. Uh, so, so it's it's all of those items. I think there's a big focus, you know, which certainly in the U.S. Uh, nowadays around, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So, you know, not just policies, but actually the outcomes. I mean, do you have a diverse workplace? 
you know, are, you know, women, people of color uh, represented in the senior management of the firm? Uh, are, you know, are there way, are there pay inequities? So the companies have to look at sort of pay levels between different uh, demographic groups. So, you know, what this does by actually, you know, focus on creating sort of a more fair and equitable workplace, uh, and I discuss in the chapter is, you know, leads to much higher employee retention uh, and much more uh, successful attraction of employees as well. So this is something that really came through in all the interviews I did for the book that, you know, what one person told me when people, when people hear they're a B Corp uh, and, and say, well, why, why are you a B Corp? What do you get from that? And their answer is, I never have to worry about employees. Uh, and, what, and what she meant by this is people never leave because they're treated so well. And when the business is growing, uh, and they need to hire new people. There's a long line out, out the door of people that want to work at the company, and so so these actually positive employee practices, you know, have a real uh, economic benefit for the firm through sort of retention and attraction of employees. Uh, that's very interesting. So apparently, I, I guess at the moment the impact is stronger in terms of marketing for. Uh, the potential employees rather than marketing for customers, or at least uh, it, it seems so. Correct. I, I would agree. So if, if you were to say, and, and this is something that, that when I teach a class about this, the students struggle with it because, uh, you know, many times people think, okay, you know, the, you know, having the B logo and being a socially committed business is something about, you know, the external presentation of the firm to, you know, the consu- millennial consumers, Gen Z consumers, you know, really are excited about this. But but I think it's actually this the employee effects. If you want to think about what the big economic benefit of, of this is, it's actually through uh, through the workplace uh, and and HR. Very interesting. So let's move to uh, chapter number ten, which is uh, which also addresses a very interesting topic, controversial most, because you say big isn't always bad. And uh, of course, I agree. And um, many people should agree. But um, we live in a world where for decades, uh, we've been told that the big corporations, whatever sector they operate in, should be uh, seen uh, with uh, caution, and if not uh, even considered as evil. So what do you mean uh, to tell us from uh, with, with this chapter and, with, and this title? Yeah, so I, so one of the things is I've observed this movement for now over 10 years uh, that has really more recently got me very excited about the future of it is that many large companies are now interested in taking on this challenge of, be, of being certified. Uh, so, you know, the, the most sort of well-known and prominent one is Danone. Uh, this is a 30 billion U.S. dollar uh, company based out of Paris. Uh, currently, over 30% of their overall sales are from their B Corp subsidiaries. Uh, so they have subsidi- about 20 subsidiaries that are certified, largest, as I mentioned, being the the, uh, B- the North American operation. Uh, they've committed, the, the CEO, Emmanuel Faber, has committed by 2025 to certify the entire global organization. Uh, that's you know sort of one one example that I talk a lot about in that chapter. I did, I did actually published a case study on on Danone's experience, uh, Danone North America's experience getting certified. 
you know, another one from South America, uh, Brazil, is Natura, which is a cosmetics company, long-standing, you know, in focus on environmental uh, ingredients, environmentally uh, sustainable and, and healthy ingredients. Uh, you know, that's a big trend nowadays, but they were a real pioneer of this. Uh, their model is, you know, ha- selling through sort of independent saleswomen. Uh, and they see this as a way to help provide economic opportunity and growth uh, to women in Brazil and in other places. And they have, I think, 2 million of these women. They provide sort of training and a way to sort of earn a livelihood. Uh, so Natora recently purchased the, uh, the UK-based The Body Shop uh, and the American-based Avon, which is a very large, um, sort of very well-known in America cosmetics company. Also the same model of, uh, of, of you know, individual women sort of selling within their sort of networks uh, and communities. So, so after these acquisitions, Natura is about a $10 billion company. And so, you know, with these companies that have sort of taken a leadership in becoming part of this movement, there's a groundswell of interest among other leading uh, uh, global companies. And so, you know, for instance, uh, well, you know, let, let me say a little bit about the, those, a little bit more about those two examples. So, you know, one from Europe, one from South America, and I, I don't think that's an accident. It's unfortunate, again, sort of this sort of U.S. Wall Street, uh, you know, sort of short-term culture, I think, has really created uh, some issues in the United States with, uh, with, with large companies being able to sign up. So I think in, in both in Europe and, and in South America, you know, there's a lot of large companies. And I think that, you know, the way capitalism is practiced in, uh, in those two regions, well, particularly among companies, whereas in, you know, uh, in Europe, uh, much more sort of, a you know, more regulated, greater social uh, focus in, in companies. Uh, and then in, in South America, you know, a lot more family, large of the companies have some family ownership or family background which is also usually much more long-term. So I think, you know, as I look forward, this sort of big isn't always bad. I think there's going to be more and more larger companies going through this. uh, And I think that they're mostly going to be European and South American firms. And that suggests to me that this movement, you know, is even going to become more global and, and maybe even the center of gravity of it will shift out of the United States. By the way, do I remember correctly that the fee for the certification is at 0.01 of the sales? So the, the large membership, they will bring substantial resources to the organization. Wow. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And I should, I should mention something too, which is important for, it goes back to your earlier question about whether you should believe this. You know, it's really... Um, for certifying organizations, there's always a tension between, uh, you know, getting fees and, you know, the, 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 the model is to, uh, the economic model is you get money from the companies that are certified. So, so you might think there's a natural conflict of interest in yes. actually setting the certification, uh, which I think is a really important point that the B-Lab people have wrestled with quite a bit because it's, it's obvious. Uh, uh, attention. So, so one thing is obviously organizing as a nonprofit, which is you know, which puts less of a focus on on the bottom line as maybe if you were the commercial certifier. Uh, but secondly, 
sort of after they got started, uh, maybe in the second or third version of the certification standards, they actually spun off the certification standards to an independent uh, standards advisory council. So actually the standards setting um, is 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 by another entity that is that is separate from uh, B Lab. So they've tried to create, you know, some separation between the standards and uh, and the certification, so that they, you know, to try to mitigate this potential conflict of interest. Uh, this is very very smart and very interesting. Um, if I want to raise a critique to these, uh, um, looking at my own profession, uh, my concern is that. Uh, uh, we live now in a certification and accreditation world, and yeah. you can assume that it is normal to certify food or chemical products or hardware, as we've been doing for now many decades. But when it comes to certifying uh, academic programs and uh, putting a lot of constraints around the, even the most intellectual profession like ours, uh, yeah. Then I, I start being a bit skeptical that maybe there is too much of a certification in this planet. So um, what would you say? Is it uh, correct that everything is going to be stamped and controlled? And, uh, or is it a sign that uh, maybe trust is no longer uh, a key regulator of our society and our professions? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough uh, question. I mean, I think it, it varies by, um, yeah, sort of varies by sector. But I think you know this issue of trust uh, in companies is, particularly large companies, as you mentioned in one of your questions, is not high. Uh, and so, and there's lots of examples of you know sort of the famous greenwashing where you know companies are communicating about how they're you know very socially progressive and forward and doing great things on the environment, but then actually sort of when you peel back the covers and look inside the firm, actually there's a decoupling between sort of the external presentation and inside the company. So I think for, particularly for companies uh, that having a third party uh, sort of certify and verify uh, what you're, what they're doing, I think is, is important uh, in this realm. You know, given, I mean, the world is just increasing in its complexity. Uh, and so, you know, if customers can learn about this, okay, there's this brand that has a B. And if that's on it, I can actually know that there that the company has been uh, vetted in some ways that other companies uh, have not. This is a good point. The complexity requires uh, uh, something to, to help people to, to understand what they are looking at. Mm, okay, let's move to the final chapter, convincing consumers to care. So, um, yes, we hear, for example, about Apple producing our devices under exterminating conditions for the workers in uh, southern China, but we don't care. And uh, Apple, Apple, for example, managed to dissociate itself from uh, the actual producer of the company, even if it works uh, for, for them. Um, but yes, consumers do not care particularly. So a question for you and for the founders of the movement, how do you persuade customers to be more um, careful of the labels, in this case, the social label of what they are going to buy? Yeah, that's, a, that's I think, you know, a big challenge for this movement because it's still, you know, many people don't know about the B Corp um, uh, logo yet. And I think that 
that, you know, it's been around 10 years. And, and you know, I think there's made tremendous progress. I mean, I talked about the laws. Uh, one thing I haven't talked about yet, but, but in investment markets, made tremendous progress in bringing investors along. Uh, I think that in large companies, as, as we discussed, there's been a lot of progress, you know, moving from very small companies to now, you know, some of the largest companies in the world are, are jumping on this. But actually getting consumers aware of this uh, and the general public aware of this idea and this brand has lagged uh, uh, somewhat. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic and hopeful that in this next phase of growth, that customers will become much more aware of, of the B Corp phenomena. A couple of reasons why I'm optimistic. I mean, so one is, you know, with these uh, increasing um, uh, larger companies, it actually means that the brand is becoming much more ubiquitous. So actually, uh, I'm not at home now. I'm actually visiting my family. And, you know, I saw S Silk Soy Milk was in their refrigerator. Uh, and I said, okay, Silk is owned by Danone. Uh, is the B Corp logo on this? You know, sure enough, it was. I saw in the pantry, there was King Arthur Flower, another B Corp. Uh, I said, is the B Corp logo? Sure enough, actually. So the Silk uh package it was on the front uh the king arthur flower it was on the side panel of the flower sack uh but they devoted a very large portion of like one fourth almost of the external packaging you know one you know almost the whole panel of the side you know devoted to the b logo and, and what it means uh so i think that with these larger uh organizations you know like you know denone Another one, you know, the Gap is a large U.S.-based uh, apparel company, and one of its sub-brands or um, subsidiaries is called Athleta. It's, you know, relatively well-known. It's more sort of, uh, it's a women's-focused brand of yoga, athletic wear, uh, and they became a B Corp, and they have the B Corp on their tags, a B Corp logo. So I think that it's, you know, for the first decade, you know, it was not on a lot of products uh, yet. Uh, you know, you know, things like, you know, Patagonia or Ben and Jerry's had actually very early did not put it on their um, their products. I think Ben and Jerry's has a number of their products now. I'm not sure about Patagonia yet. It's just an example. So so I think that that it's going to be in consumer spaces a lot more, which I think obviously will lead to greater uh, re consumer residence. Uh, secondly, I think just demographically, and this also, you know, sort of ties back to my students' interest. You know, when I first started teaching on these topics, you know, very few students were interested. You know, now, you know, it's huge uh, classes because, you know, it's something that really resonates tremendously with, you know, the millennial and Gen Z. So I think that also, you know, demographically, as, you know, those consumers continue buying uh, and there's scores of studies that show that these that those millennial and Gen Z consumers want to have their values in their purchases in their employ in their employment, so I think that's another trend that I think will you know help this uh, scale. But you know you're right to ask about it because I think that again from you know employee effects to investors to to laws, tremendous you know progress over the past decade, and I think you know this next decade will really um, hopefully be about expanding con consumers in a way that it hasn't yet. Indeed, and this is why we also wish you uh, good luck with selling this book and the same uh, with B-Lab in uh, doing even more certifications. Uh, at this point, I usually ask uh, my guests about their 
next book. But I see from your CV that uh, this is only your second book uh, and that your mm-hmm. amazing career was uh, based so far on publishing on journals. And for, for the academics in management, those are the top journals in the planet. You publish on ASQ, Academy of Management, Organization Science, so the top journals. So my question for you is, are you going to invest more time on books or at least another book, or will you go back to what is standard in in academic work for, for management scholars, which is journals? Yeah, I do. St- I mean, I'm still actively working on journal articles, and I have a number of those. Uh, in, in process, you know, I think that uh, I have I have two you know early stage books in progress. Uh, so one is you know uh, builds directly off of this set of work, uh, and you know and it relates to this idea of externalities. Uh, and I'm I think I'm going to do a book on sort of you know rolling the covers back on this idea of externalities and how you know so many companies are getting basically a free lunch at the expense of of the planet and the population. And it's going to, you know, whereas this B Corp book is much more a positive story, you know, let's look at these people that are really contributing. uh, Well, you know, this book is going to be much more of a, you know, sort of name and shame these companies that, you know, are delivering all kinds of profits to their shareholders, but at the same time, they're polluting their, um, their, their communities. And so, you know, that's, that's, um, and sort of different types of externalities. So, you know, one of the really interesting externalities that I've run into in this research, uh, is plastics. Uh, you know, it's really, uh, much cheaper to use virgin plastic, uh, and, and, um, you know, it's easier to, to mold, it's easier to obtain, it's easier, but, but, you know, it's plastic is a material that is around forever. So by using this virgin plastic, you're sort of saving the company saving money, but actually passing on a big benefit is excuse me, a big external waste externality to the rest of society. Uh, so, you know, there's been a lot of creativity in the companies I've studied on ways of, you know, reducing in some cases to zero uh, plastic. Uh, actually there's, a movement uh, among a number of companies to be plastic neutral. So, you know, finding ways of, you know, if they, you know, have to have to have plastic for some of their, their products, because if the product has any sort of liquid or water, it's really hard to do it in, you know, sort of paper or cardboard or, or even metal. Uh, so, so if companies do this, then they commit to actually, in some ways, you know, taking plastic out of the, um, you know, sort of, you know, out of, out of the sort of the great plastic um, heap in the Pacific Ocean or sort of other recycling uh, ways. And so I think sort of, a, you know, one of the main sets of uh, areas I'm going to be looking at in the next book is on externalities. Thank you. We look forward to reading your next books. In the meantime, congratulations for Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. This was published by Yale University Press in 2020. We just spoke with uh, Professor Christopher Marquis. He is a Samuel Johnson Professor in Global Sustainable Enterprise and Professor of Management at Cornell University. Thank you very much for your time, Christopher. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. It was really nice to talk. <laughs>